again. Father, we thank you for we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here in this moment. Lord, many of us have had life going on, even potentially this morning, that could be distracting to us, that could pull our attention away from you and your word. We ask, Father, that you would take us in this moment and allow our hearts to be focused on you, allow our minds to not be distracted by life, but allow us, Father, to see your Son clearly in your word. We need you to work in us. We need you. We just need you. It's in the amazing and holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. So some years ago, a study was done. And the study went like this. Children in the preschool age of life were set at a table. And in front of them was set a marshmallow. And they were told, you can eat the marshmallow now or you can get your favorite candy bar if you wait. Nobody waited. I can't say nobody waited, but the amount of waiting for the candy bar was very small compared to the consumption of the marshmallow. It's just a marshmallow. They cost like $2 for a bag of 50 of them. You can get it whenever you want, but, but it's there right now, and, and you can have it. And as small children, they don't have the understanding that they should wait for something better instead of taking what they want right now. The good part is that goes away when we get older. Except it doesn't. We maybe don't have marshmallows set on, on a table before us, but we have other things, and we say to ourselves, I want that thing right now. I don't want to wait for something else. And that is exactly what goes through this psalm, Psalm 73. We're going to look at Psalm 73 in a variety of different sections. There's really two major movements in this psalm. As you know, psalms are songs and, and poems, and so we get these movements in them. The first movement, which is really the first half of the psalm, can be looked at in two distinct ways. We could break it down into a lot more pieces than three, but that's what we're going to break it down into is three general sections. The very first section is... Psalm 73, verses 1 through 9. So we're going to sort of walk ourselves through this to sense the movement and then move into the middle of the psalm, and then we're going to look at the response to the psalm. The psalm starts out in a really nice, good way. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's almost like he's setting himself up to break. He's saying, here's what I know is true. I know God is good to Israel. I know he is good to the pure in heart. 
And he follows that with a conjunction. A conjunction is a word that connects two phrases or sentences together or ideas together. But this is not a conjunction like, and I know God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, and I am such a good person. It's not an and. He uses the connector but, which separates the following statement from the previous one. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but, but what? But as for me, me, my feet had nearly slipped. Uh, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? So he knows that God is good to Israel, good to those who are pure, innocent, right before him, but his feet had almost slipped. He had almost broken. Why? Because he envied the arrogant. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And that's what clues us in a little bit. And I can't speak for you, except that I'm going to speak for you. We all struggle in this area. We go about life and we look around us and we find people who are ultra successful, who are ultra bad people. And we kind of want what they have. We know we shouldn't. We know we shouldn't want what they have because, because we know that God is good to Israel, that God is good to the pure in heart. But, but I look around and I see all these people and they've got all this stuff that I would love to have. And that stuff can be whatever it is for us as individuals. It could be money, it could be power, it could be prestige, it could be a house, it could be cars, it could be family, it could be talents and gifts or whatever it is. And we say, I want what they have. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs unto death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. What does the psalmist Asaph see in these broken, wicked people that he wants. They have no pangs until death. These are people we see and their lives go easy. They're making all the wrong choices. All the things that we know are not right yet, the result of all of their wrong choices is the stuff that we want. They're fat and sleek. Uh, That's a weird thing for us to think about because we live in a different culture than, than what is going on here. And what's going on in our culture is that fatness is easy. It's easy to, to gain weight. Why? Because we have an abundance of high calorie food that can be given to us at any point in time. And frequently, the higher calorie, less healthy food is cheaper and easier to purchase than the better food for you. So we eat the high calorie, low cost food and we gain weight. So here he's saying though, their bodies are fat and sleek and we say, but we don't want fat and sleek. We want trim and in shape. 
So why would he say that their bodies are fat and sleek? And it's because their culture was different. They woke up. How many of you walk everywhere you go? There's only one person I know who walks everywhere he goes, and he sat in the first service, so I know he's not here. And that's Lynn Miller. The guy walks everywhere he goes. Six o'clock in the morning, I showed up at a men's Bible study, and the guy walked three and a half miles to get there. He is my hero. <laughs> Yet, most of us are not walking that amount of distance at any point in time, let alone to be somewhere for a six o'clock meeting. But in their culture, they did. They didn't have cars to take them places. We were chatting about farmers in the first service. Farming used to be a highly exhausting endeavor. It took huge amounts of physical labor to farm a field. And as time has gone on, it's gotten easier and easier. They made tractors and they could plow like 8,000 rows at a time or something like that. And I was talking to a guy named Dave, and Dave's a farmer. And Dave's a farmer who's been farming for 50-some years. And he said that his job no longer requires physical exertion. The tractor does everything for him. He doesn't even have to steer the tractor. He just plugs into his GPS where he wants it to go, and it does everything except when he gets to the end of the row, he's got to push the button that says raise the planter, plow, whatever he's got on. And so it then turns him around, and he pushes the button that says put it back down. That's the extent of his physical exertion. And so it's even changing there. That's not a ding on farming. It's efficient, it's good, it's expensive, but it's efficient and it's good. <clears throat> but these people and this culture, in order to be fat and sleek, you had to be the most powerful of the most powerful, the most wealthy of the most wealthy, because the wealthy had more food than they needed to eat, and they didn't have jobs that required them to run around the mountains all day chasing sheep. They had jobs that allowed them to sit in their palace or in their home or in their business and just eat food. Because not only did people have huge amounts of labor to do, they also had a shortage of food. So they were hoping to eat just enough food to have covered the amount of calories, though they didn't know it was calories, that they expended in the day. They were just hoping to break even in eating enough to get there. I just hope to break even in that I actually did something in the day to burn energy. There's a difference in the cultures. So when the psalmist here says that these wicked people are fat and sleek, that means he's saying that they've gotten what everybody wants. They've gotten an abundance of food. They've gotten an easy life. This is not a slandering them. This is almost applauding what they've achieved, which is the problem. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble like others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So the world was going about and does go about in, a, in this mode of dealing with trouble on a seemingly constant level. Stressors that are more than we want. Our bodies are breaking down. We don't have enough money to have the things that we're looking for or to spend it in the way that we would like. All of these different things that are stressors to us. And we look around and we see people who make all the wrong choices and they don't have those stressors. 
to have an abundance of everything we feel we're lacking in. And it makes us want what they have. And that's wrong. We know that's wrong. But still in our brokenness, we want what they have because what they have seems better than what we have. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And because of that, because their bodies are sleek, because they have no pangs, because they're not in trouble, because they're not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore, pride is their necklace. I gave my wife a necklace when we moved here, or shortly after we moved here. It's actually quite a while after we moved here. For her birthday, I believe. She wanted something that, that was UP-oriented, so I gave her this necklace. And like you do with any necklace, she put it on and immediately stuffed it inside her shirt so that nobody would see it, right? Is that what you do with a necklace? Do you put it on so that nobody will possibly see the necklace that you're wearing? No. In fact, most people choose the necklace that they're going to wear so that it can be seen on top of or above their shirt line or whatever it is, but they want people to see the necklace that they're wearing. So here, when he says pride is their necklace, it is not just saying that pride is something that they have on them. Pride is something they have on them and they want everybody to see. Our culture applauds that. If you can tell everybody how much better you are than them, then you must be pretty good. You follow it up with, with what you're doing, but you're applauded for being arrogant. You're applauded for being prideful. That's what we've built. And even as Christians, if we're not careful, we fall in that trap. Pastors are a perfect example of this. Because we shouldn't be prideful, we should know better. But we are, and we do know better. I've gone to pastor conferences, and if any of you have ever been to a pastor's conference, not like showing up at a place with 3,000 other guys that you've never met and will never meet again, but showing up at like a district sort of thing where you could possibly see these people again. There is a first question that every pastor seemingly asks every other pastor. Do you know what that is? How big is your church? As though that were the most important thing about you, the number of people who sit in the chairs at your building. But we ask it because we want to say how big our church is. We want people to know how well we are doing. It's a form of pride. And we don't wear it as a necklace in this same sense but we still put it out there so everyone can see. We want people to know how well we're doing. The Sunday school class I was just in for a few moments, they were talking about prayer. And one of the things that they were talking about was that prayer, the, the, the dependent element on the Holy Spirit or on Christ that prayer is. That takes you away from pride because you cannot be dependent and prideful at the same time. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They will take what they want in any way that it requires taking. But these are the people he was envious of. 
Because even in their pride, even in their violence, even in their, what we're going to read later, they were accomplishing what he thought he wanted. So he was envious of them. Their eyes swell, through, swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. So these are people who on a peer-ish sort of level, they're overwhelming the people around them with derision. But more than that, so not only are they doing well and they, they make sure that everybody knows it around them and they, they're oppressive and difficult and they're, uh, they're breaking people, they shift their focus here in verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue stretched through the earth. So now where have they put their focus? Not just in telling everybody else how much better they are than everybody else, but they've shifted their focus to telling God how much better they are than he is. And their pride is put before him. What a foolish thing to do. But they're still getting what we want at times. And when we want what they have by the means that they've gotten it, we're in danger. So that's the first movement of this psalm. The movement that says, here's what the wicked have and here's what the wicked do. It's not good. But he was envious of them. So, because they have no pangs and because their bodies are fat and because they're not in trouble and they've got no strickenness in life, pride is their necklace. They have violence. They have fatness, follies, malice. They scoff. They threaten. They roll their eyes or set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, because of all of that, we get a really weird verse Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Okay, lots of pronouns. Who is doing what to whom? Therefore, his people. Who are the people who have been referred to as somebody's people? These are God's people, the Israelites. Turn back to who is them. Them is the wicked. Them is the scoffers, the prideful. They find no fault in them. And they say, well, how can God know? Maybe God doesn't see. But why would they turn back to them before we even get into what they're saying? Why would they turn back to these people that they know are broken, backwards, wrong before God? The answer is really simple and humbling at the same time. It's because we think that we can get something from them. And so we turn back to them. Because maybe we can ride on their coattails just a bit and pick up some of the leftover success that they're getting. Or they can take us to the place that we want to be. So, so jettison the problems. Let's just hold on to this broken person and say, you take us where we want to be. Because no matter how you're getting there, you're getting there. So God's people turn back to the broken. 
Turn back to the wicked. Turn back to those who are in opposition to God. Why? Because they can get something from them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Maybe God says that these things are true, but he doesn't really see what they're doing. They're just sort of skating by. We have a phrase that we use in America. It might be bigger than America, I don't know. But it puts us in a bit of a, a problem. And it's the same problem that we see here. I remember hearing people talk and they say, do you know how much that person's worth? And what they mean is, how much financial means does that person have? But what they just said was, this person has a great value because they have lots of money. And when we start measuring people's value based on how much finances they have, we are one half step away from saying, I'm not going to find fault in that person because they're making it financially. They're getting there. We want to tie ourselves to them in some way to gather what they've got. How are they getting it? I don't care. I just want it. We see that in sports players, in politicians, in leaders. We see it in businessmen. We see it in the random people around town. And we sort of have this idea that maybe God doesn't know how bad they are. I know it, but maybe God doesn't. So I'm just going to sort of go along with them and try to gain what they have along with them so that I can have more. We can very easily find ourselves there. Therefore, his people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. How can, God, how can God say what he does? Because here's the wicked, they're at ease. Their life is easy. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So let's compare these two. The wicked always at ease. Asaph, the psalmist, trying to live a pure, innocent life before God, stricken and rebuked. And he says, in effect, I'm tired of it. What's the point? There's a whole book of the Bible written about this. And it's basically covered in verses 12 to 19 out of this psalm. The book is Ecclesiastes. And what the writer says is this, I've tried everything. And everything you can do in life is absolutely, totally, and without reservation pointless. It's all pointless. Everything under the sun is vanity, brokenness, and it's not worth doing. Until he has a shift in perspective. And the shift in perspective is essentially just this. Maybe I should look at it from the end point not just this moment that I'm in the earth. So 
So verse 15 is the transition, and we move from the first half to the second half, and that first half section is about the wicked and how good life is for them and how they are getting what they want and everything we want. When is the question? Right now. How long does a person live? A person lives, I know, I've known thousands of people, and I can count on one hand how many have made it to 100. That's less than five if you can't count. So let's just say 100 years is how long people live, even though most people live far less than that. How long is eternity? It's not actually measurable, so let's just, let's just say that it's a million years, okay? How long is this moment in time, this 100-year lifespan in comparison to a million-year-long span? It's one one-hundredth of one percent. That's not much. And that's an important idea to keep in mind as we move into the second half of this because all the psalmist has done so far is look at the one one-hundredth of one percent of time, not the big picture. So in this moment, it sure looks like they're doing well. So let's transition. Verse 15. If I had said what I thought, and he said, if I had said, I will speak this, sort of the idea of, if I would teach this idea that the wicked are prospering and I want to be with them like them have what they have, if I were to have taught that, I would have betrayed what? I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Effectively, that means this. If he's standing here as a teacher, teaching people what it means to follow God, and he starts teaching them wrong, he's not betraying you. He's betraying your children. Because if I teach you something wrong and you take it and hold on to it, you're going to inevitably teach that to your children. And in your teaching that to your children, you will teach them wrong. So now your children are being taught wrong because I taught you wrong. That's what the psalmist is saying. Had I taught this to people, I would have been wrong. I would have been out of place and I would have made it bad for your children. Had I spoken thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, because it's still true. It's still true that the wicked are prospering. It's still true that the wicked have what makes life easy, at least at times. He's not negating that reality. He's saying, but when I contemplated this, and this is verse 16, but when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It wore me out trying to understand this. until I went into the sanctuary of God. And when Asaph, the psalmist, took himself out of the moment, 
and stepped back and stepped into the sanctuary of God. And we, we call this the sanctuary. This is not what they were specifically meaning when he talked about the sanctuary. The sanctuary of God was a particular one place. So all the different churches have different sanctuaries is what they would refer to them as or worship centers or whatever word they want to use for it. Here, they had one temple in Jerusalem. That one temple had the sanctuary in it. And so when he entered that place, this was the place where God said his presence would reside on earth. And he walked into that place. And he discerned the wicked people's end. He stopped looking at the one one-hundredth of one percent of time. And he discerned where are they really going? What is really happening? Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. They are destroyed in a moment and swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you will despise them as phantoms. So what is their end? What is the end that he recognized? We would flip to James chapter 4 to get a little picture of this. In James chapter 4, verse 14, well, really, we're going to start in verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So he's talking to people who are laying out plans for their life. Is making plans for your life bad? No. Is making plans to make money in your life bad? No. Because he doesn't rebuke them for wanting to make money. He doesn't rebuke them for making purpose. He rebukes them for thinking that they have control. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to such and such town and spend a year there and make tra or trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then banishes. 5.30 in the morning in Nebraska, Josh Gillespie and I for a while played golf. I don't know why. Don't ask. 5.30 is not a good golf time because even when the sun is starting to come up, there's frequently fog in the air. So the hole that we would start on is hole 10 and hole 10 goes out and bends to the right and Josh stepped up and hit his ball and I said, dude, I have no idea where that went. You can only see about 40 yards. He's like, I think it went straight and turned right. All right. So we walk out there. We try to find the ball. We do find his ball. But 15 minutes later, the sun comes up. And within just a couple of minutes, the fog is totally gone. What remained of the fog after it, the sun came up? Nothing. In fact, if you would have woken up at 6 o'clock and looked out your window, you'd have had no idea that I could only see 40 yards in the golf course because of the fog, because the fog was gone. What are we? We're like fog that just goes away. That doesn't mean you don't have value. It doesn't mean that you don't make some sort of lasting impact on the people around you. But friends, we're each person one out of about seven billion of people who are living one one-hundredth of one percent of life. We're going to go away. How many of you know the name of my great-grandpa? My wife raised her hand. <laughs> 
Not fair. (laughs) None of you know him. Has it changed your life to this point? No. Was he a good man? Yeah. We will go away. Those wicked people who are getting ahead in life right now, who we want to be envious of because they're getting what we wish we had, when the end comes, they're going to disappear like a mist, like a fog. There's going to be nothing left, and all they're going to have is not money, power, prestige. It's not an easy life. It's God and his judgment. So when we, when we step back and look at the picture that is actually there, it becomes easy to not be envious of them because what they have is maybe easy in the moment and death in the end. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, which is really the verses that had just already come, the whole first half of this psalm, when I was brutish and ignorant, when I was like a beast towards you. Really what he's saying is now that I've come into your sanctuary, I discern what's really going on. I see you and I see objective reality through who you are, God. I see the way that I was acting like a wild beast, not caring about anything, just wanting what it wants when it wants it. Nevertheless, And this is where the shift happens in this, where if we broke this half into two sections, we come to this this new part that is a forward-looking, not just a big picture, but a forward-looking for Asaph perspective. And he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. That's the inheritance. When we went through Ephesians chapter 1, that is the inheritance that Paul says the Holy Spirit guarantees to us. Even when we fail, and we will, we're still guaranteed an inheritance when our faith is in Jesus. Why? Because he guarantees an inheritance to us, and we can't stop him. This whole This whole psalm reminds me a little bit of the parable that Jesus told about the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler parable goes like this. There was a guy, and he made all the right choices. He made lots of money. He had lots of stuff. And he said to himself, he said, you know what I need now that I have stuff? I need more stuff. So he tore his barns down. He built bigger barns and stored all of his stuff in his bigger barns. And when all of his bigger barns were full, he said, now I have arrived And God said to him, you fool. Tonight your life is required of you. You spent all your life trying to gain and gain and gain. And now that you've gotten it, it's over. Your very life is required of you. Okay, so now we step back and we discern their end. Not in a malicious, we want you to pay sort of way, but in the way that should drive us to compassion that says they need Christ. And we need to be the ones that bring him to them. Why? Because, because they're living in this perfect world life idea, but, but they're headed toward a cliff and they're going to die because of it. Now we know in that, that God is with us. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? When it really comes down to it, who do I have but you, God? 
And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. When we really grasp who he is in this moment, when he came into the sanctuary of God and discerned who God was, what did he want? Nothing but God. Job had a similar experience when he had lost everything and then spent time praising God and then lost everything more, his health even. He asked God why. And God answered him. And we're not going to get into the details of it, but God's answer to Job was this. Hey, Job, funny story. I made the earth and I'm God. You're not. And Job's response to that answer was, you're right. And now that you've said that, I don't need to question you anymore. Now that's very simplistic, right? But that's the general movement. Job never got an answer for the trouble that he had. The psalmist saying that he feels rebuked and beat down all the time. He doesn't get an answer for it. But he discerns who God is and then what God is going to do because of who he is. And then he doesn't need the same answer that he thought he wanted because God had given him a more sufficient answer. What do we need and desire besides God when we recognize who he is? Nothing. We don't need more money. We don't need more cars. We don't need more prestige or power or anything. We just need him. My heart and my flesh may fail, and they will. We know what's right. We know what we need and what we want, and yet our hearts will fail. How will they fail? We'll go back to a life that starts in verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I envied the arrogant. That's when my heart and flesh fail. They're not strong enough. I'm not living dependent on the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to do it on my own, and when I try to do it on my own, I will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So even when we fail, God is that in our lives forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you'll put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Ephesians, or Ephesians, I looked at something on my Bible. Philipp, okay, so I have never had this before. I just made the same two word errors in this sermon that I did in the first one. I couldn't say the word psalm. I said Ephesians. And then I said, I mean Philippians. And it's not either one of those. I have never done that in my life. Anyway, kind of funny story. Yes, everyone can laugh at me. It's okay. I'll just cry myself to sleep. Psalm 34 says that God is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit, but those who oppose him, he will destroy for behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near the Lord. For I have made the Lord my refuge. For I have made the Lord my refuge. I abide in him. I'm trusting in him. All of these things, to what end? that I may tell, that I may tell of all your works.
So the Psalm starts out saying God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but I'm broken. And in my brokenness, I'm envious of the wicked, even though they're terrible and they do things wrong, I'm envious of what they have. But when I step back and look at things and seeing God in it, I see the end that they have, which is destruction. So all of the good that I see in what they have, they're going to lose and perish. And now I know that God is with me and he'll be with me. He's guaranteed being with me. Why? So that I can tell of his works to everyone. To the people around me in this room, the people who need to be built up in the Lord, to the people outside of the faith of Christ who need someone to share that with them so they can have a faith in Jesus. That's why it's there. Our job then is to trust him, see him in these things, and share him with the people around us. And when we live that way, I'm not saying you won't fail because you will, but you'll find failure less frequent. And you'll find that you don't fail when you trust in the Holy Spirit. When you're dependent on the Holy Spirit, when you walk in the Spirit, you live out the fruit of the Spirit. But when you walk by yourself, we carry out the desires of the flesh. Psalm 73. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your work. We thank you for all of who you are. We pray, Father, that you would be, that you would continue to make yourself evident to us, that you would continue to show us more and more of how your character interacts with life. And Lord, for us, for me, when we struggle in these areas, we ask that you would Remind us gently what it means to trust you, what it means to depend on you, what it means to know you. When we, when we fail, when our heart and flesh are weak, we pray, Father, that you would use the people around us to gently bring us back to you. We do love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for life in you. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you are. And it's in your sons, Jesus Christ's amazing and holy name we pray. Amen.